Well, we're looking at Revelation. We're at chapter 20 uh, today in our series. And uh, I've said we've been trying to trying to kind of present a pastoral look at Revelation. I really, I kind of think maybe we need to, to do a book, uh, a, a pastor looks at Revelation, because we've been trying to point out things that I believe John, as a pastor, wanted his churches, his congregation, to understand. So uh, we've said this repeatedly, but this series hasn't been about predicting things or naming countries and timelines and all that stuff that'll happen in the future. Instead, we've been trying to point out the message in Revelation that had an immediate impact on the churches that John was writing to, the churches that were reading that letter, the, the, the book of Revelation. And this book has important lessons for us about how we should be living our lives just like it had that impact upon that first century church. So how do we live our lives in light of Babylon's influence, in light of uh, that we're living in direct opposition uh, to the beast? And so, uh, and, and think about it. I mean, John didn't say, here's some stuff the Lord showed me, but I wouldn't worry about it because it won't matter for another couple of thousand years. So just, you know, just read this and then go, wonder what that's all about, but at least we don't have to worry about it. That's not what happened, you know, and he didn't say, it'll be good news for your descendants 2,000 years from now because they'll write books and make movies about it and make a whole lot of money. So that, that was not the premise. Instead, John writes out of a, of a genuine pastoral concern And as we said last Sunday, this is about salvation. This is a message of promise and a message of warning. And when you think about it, as we've studied, the body of the revelation, the body of this book, is a fleshing out of the letters to the churches in the opening. So uh, if you go back and read the letters to the seven churches and then read, read the rest of it, All of it is saying exactly what the Lord said to the churches. Don't compromise with sin. Don't align yourself with Babylon, with Jezebel. Don't align yourself with the empire. Don't give up when persecution comes. Endures to the end because the one who overcomes and endures to the end receives the crown of life and they're saved. And somehow or another, in my 67 years, I missed most of those lessons because everybody was always saying, we're going to have to watch out for the mark of the beast. Be careful. Don't do that. And, and so I kind of missed what the pastoral message was. And I'm really glad that, that close to the end of the journey for me, uh, you know, at this stage and age, whatever that I'm able to go, oh boy, I'm glad I didn't miss that because this is really a book of worship and and assurance and promise to us. And, and I think that's important. So once again, what are the lessons for today? How do we, how do those lessons affect how we can live our lives today? So I didn't put this on the screen because I don't know how to cut and paste and I didn't want to type the entire chapter, but I'm going to read it. Uh, plus it was just a whole lot. And, uh, and psychologically it would affect me because it would be m- more pages than I need in my notes. So I'm going to read Revelation 20 and you should have a Bible with you anyway when you come to church. And then I want to give you a quick summary of our Assembly of God position regarding last things, uh, just to make sure that I'm, uh, that I, that I won't be kicked out. And then I want to make some observations uh, that I think are important. To, so just to kind of set the stage for you this morning. Remember last week, the armies of the beast had gathered to fight against the people of God. And Jesus, the one who's faithful and true, who has a name written on his thigh, right? Instead of a sword hanging there, he's got his name written. He returns to earth with his saints. He's coming back with us. 
He speaks the word and the beast and the false prophet, the two who cause people to take the mark of the beast and align themselves against God, those two are captured and thrown alive into the lake of fire. And the rest of those who had come to fight against the army of God in the valley of Armageddon, they're defeated by the word that Jesus speaks, the word that comes from his mouth. And so now we're going to pick this up at Revelation 20. So John writes, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. And they came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead didn't come to life until the thousand years were ended. And this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they'll be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number, they're like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So apparently the false prophet and the beast had not been consumed. Notice that. They'll be tormented day and night forever. Anyway. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades, the place of the dead, were thrown into the lake of fire. I got pretty excited about that when I read that. Death itself is thrown into the lake of fire. Hallelujah. For everybody that's lost somebody in recent days, death itself is going to be thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death, it says. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So here's a quick summation of the of the AG position, our assembly of God position regarding the rapture and the resurrection and the millennial reign of Christ and the final judgment, what we just read. So let me run through this. So we believe in the imminent return of the Lord, that he could come any day and that what, in what we call the rapture of the church, the catching away of the bride of Christ. The apostle Paul says in first Thessalonians chapter four, that the trump of God will sound signaling the return of the Lord for his church. And at that time, Paul says the dead in Christ, those who are saved, born again, that they, the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain, Paul was expecting maybe he'd be one of those, but those who are alive and remain would be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. This is 
uh, this is what John refers to as the first resurrection. These are the righteous. And, and so resurrection comes, the resurrection of the righteous dead, those who had uh, repented of their sins and died in faith. After the rapture of the church, the earth and its unsaved inhabitants, those left here, then experience a time of trouble as God's wrath, and we've been reading about that over these last many weeks, that that wrath is poured out on the earth. We call that the tribulation period. And the judgment culminates, that judgment culminates with the battle scene that we talked about last week in Revelation 19. Jesus comes back to earth with the saints of God. The rapture's for the saints to catch us away. But he comes again this time, this second coming. He comes then with the saints of God, those who had been resurrected or those who had been raptured. And so we're the the saints dressed in white linen, bright and clean. And he speaks the word, defeats the armies of the Antichrist, the beast and the false prophet. Beast and the false prophet are cast into the lake of fire. Satan himself is bound and imprisoned in the abyss for a thousand years. And we call this the millennial reign. Millennial means a thousand years. And during this 1,000 year period, Jesus rules a kingdom here on earth. And his capital will be in Jerusalem, and we, the saints of God, will rule and reign with him. We have glorified bodies like his. We'll see him as he is. And so we have glorified bodies like his, so we don't age, we won't die. But people that survived the tribulation period and that weren't involved in Armageddon and all that, they'll still be here in natural bodies. During this time, Christ's reign will fulfill the prophecies of Isaiah. There'll be no more war. There'll be justice for everyone. Isaiah said, They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The lion and the lamb will lay down together. There won't be natural enemies anymore. The lion is going to eat hay along with the ox. Swords are going to be beaten into plowshares. Imagine that, that all of the uh, military complex of the world uh, China won't be making those big balloons uh, anymore. We won't be spying on each other. We won't be spending billions of dollars to arm ourselves against enemies. None of that. Satan is in prison for a thousand years, so there's no tempter. There's no temptation to sin. There's no sickness. There's nothing to hurt or destroy. It's like the Garden of Eden restored on this planet with Jesus, the second Adam, ruling and reigning over the earth. At the end of the thousand years, Satan is released for a short time to once again deceive the nations. And then there's a final battle where fire comes down from heaven to consume the armies of Satan. Satan is bound, cast into the lake of fire forever, and we never hear from him again. And then comes the great white throne judgment when all the wicked dead are raised. This is the second resurrection that John speaks of in chapter 20. So all the wicked dead, the books are opened and all those whose names were not written in the Lamb's book of life are thrown into the lake of fire along with the devil. And that's the destiny of all who reject God's offer of forgiveness and grace. And that's essentially the, the summation or the scenario uh, of, uh, of the, the end times uh, and what we believe. But as I said, Revelation's not just about the future. There are lessons for today. So let me share four lessons with you this morning. First of all, we learn this. Satan is a deceiver, so don't be deceived. I said uh, last week, I think it was, or the week before, you can't negotiate with the devil, all right? You just can't. And you can't compromise with him because he will always turn on you. Jesus said that Satan is a liar and the father of lies and the truth was never found in him. And so all he knows how to do is lie. John describes him in Revelation as we, that we just uh, 
what we've read here. He describes him as the great dragon, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He says it in chapter 12. The same chapter refers to him as the accuser of the brothers. He's the one who goes off to make war against the people of God. In Revelation 19, it's said that the devil's representatives, the beast and the false prophet, deluded those who had received the mark of the beast. Deception is a primary tool and weapon of the enemy. He used it. He, he, uh, remember the New Testament says he might clothe himself as an angel of light. He came to deceive Eve and, and Adam in the garden. And so deception's what he's about. He's a liar. And contrast that with Jesus, the one whom the Bible says he's called faithful and true. There's nothing deceiving about him. In God, there's no shadow, no, no dark side to this, no turning. And so Jesus is faithful and true, no deception in him. In verse three, the devil is bound for a thousand years at says in order to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore in verse 7 satan is released after a thousand years and will go out to deceive the nations and verse 10 says and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire i think there's a theme there the devil is a deceiver and his goal his plan is to deceive the people of god he's deceived the nations he's deceived america he's deceived our young and our old and we need to be on guard deception is his game and john wants to warn his church his people don't allow yourself to be deceived by the enemy or to be deluded by his lies don't compromise with the beast or with the empire with rome follow the one who's faithful and true but don't allow yourself to give in to this deception and that message is for us as well so i think john would say to us don't align yourself with babylon or washington or new york or madison avenue or hollywood the beast and the empire the world the devil the that worldly culture will deceive you will demand allegiance from you and then finally will damn your soul to to eternity in hell don't listen to the lies of the devil don't allow yourself don't put yourself in a place where you might be deceived and john keeps the image of battle and war before us because he's telling us we have to remain vigilant all right that's the that's the price of peace is to remain vigilant never surrender to the enemy never be deceived and john urges the church in 14 verse 12 this calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey god's commandments and remain and remain faithful to jesus patient endurance means to bear up under the pressure bear up under this so we don't quit we don't give up we remain vigilant and don't allow ourselves to be deceived tell yourself the truth based on god's word about what the devil's trying to say and do call him out saying look i'm not buying that because i know you and i know you're lying and that's not the holy spirit i'm listening to so i'm not going to listen to you and refuse to be deceived and then here's the second lesson god has the final word so trust him all we've seen in Revelation in general, and in chapters 19 and 20 in particular, speaks to us of God's sovereignty, that he's in control and he will have the last word. And John's readers, including us, should thank God for this revelation, the assurance that comes from this truth. Although for a while, and remember, remember the context uh, in the in the cha- in the uh, in the letters to the churches, John even says, uh, "Well, although for a while you're going to have to suffer affliction." 
destruction. For a while, for, for two days or whatever, you're going to suffer persecution and opposition. So for a while, it looks like Babylon's winning. I mean, from every perspective, it looks like Babylon, the world, is winning. For a while, the beast and the empire, 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 oh, welcome to, welcome to Oklahoma, the empire, oh, well, <laughs> the empire strikes back. For while the beast and the empire, it looks like they're in control, but that's only for a little while. In fact, notice uh, there's an interesting contrast. Revelation chapter 17, verse 12, John says, And those who war against the Lamb will receive authority on earth to rule, he says, for one hour. Yeah, about an hour. One hour, right? One hour. In contrast to a thousand-year reign of Jesus, and then on forever because of his kingdom, there is no end. So we've got the contrast of Babylon and its kings who reign for about an hour, eh, give or take, and then one who reigns forever and forever and forever and forever. So don't be, oh, this is, it's never going to end. No, it's only about an hour. You can, you can do this for an hour or a lifetime, but forever, 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 he's going to rule and reign. So we compare it and, and think, well, then the rule of the wicked is nothing. The wicked and the proud and the arrogant and the bullies and the liars who rule now, and it looks like they get away with their treachery and violence but God has the final word. They're only in charge for a short amount of time, and then their their hour is about up. Right? That's where we are on the on the the time uh, on the timetable. And John saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And the truth is. Uh, the people of God and the church of God and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we've forever been judging the world, right? I mean, that's the truth. Those, those thrones that are established, in some sense, what John sees and what he's telling us is, yeah, the church has always been the judge. We're the ones who have judged between what's right and wrong, what's evil and what's sacred and holy. We're the ones who have judged, and we've judged rightly about things, and we've paid for it, and we've been martyred for it or persecuted for it, but we've been, we've been the judge, the one who's brought conviction to the world. That's why the world doesn't like a bunch of Christians, because we keep speaking the truth and nobody likes to hear the truth. And so there, we, we've been judging in that sense, but, uh, but we, we hear him say it again. John says, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus. And he, he's really thinking of all the church as martyrs who've laid down their lives for the Lord. And he says, and they came to life and reign with Christ a thousand years. And what the church heard in, in, in those seven churches and what we hear today is a word of encouragement to the church. That John and then and the Holy Spirit through, uh, through this scripture is saying to us, I know it's hard right now, but the wicked are going to be judged. And those who suffered in this life, those who are willing to lay down their life for Christ, they're going to rule and reign with him. And all of it reminds us that, uh, that Satan and the beast, that their authority is limited, that their time is restricted, and their influence will finally come to an end and they'll be banished forever. And so they don't have a free hand to rule forever. That time and their authority is limited and restricted by God himself. And we worry and fret about the devil and his power and control, about wicked rulers and authorities and powers. But in the end, the armies of the enemy, uh, uh, the armies of the enemy are defeated with a word, right? And the beast and the false prophet who performed all the signs and miracles are thrown alive into to a lake of fire. And finally, the devil himself 
he's going to be thrown in by an angel. It's not like he, it takes an army. An angel's just going to come with a big chain, wrap him up and go, that's it, dude, and throw him into the abyss for a thousand years. And after, after being imprisoned for a thousand years, then finally he's thrown into that same lake of fire to be tormented forever. And so John is just, he's telling his churches, don't give in to the beast. Refuse to bear the mark of compromise with Babylon. Don't, don't take that mark of allegiance to the beast because in the end, you'll rule and reign with Christ. And in every way, God has the final say. He has the final word. It's the ultimate vindication and validation of the people of God. So things may be going against you this morning at the moment, but it's only going to be an hour all right? Because God's going to have the last word, and that last word is victory. That last word is forever. That last word is triumph, and we're going to be home with him. Well, here's the third lesson. We're more broken than we think. This is fascinating, that Satan is imprisoned for a thousand years, and upon his release, he goes immediately back to his old ways of practicing deception and trying to entice people, the nations, to oppose Christ and his rule. And it's amazing when you look at Revelation, what's said about Satan. In chapter 12, it's where we read that he was, uh, he was thrown down. Remember, he's defeated. There was war in heaven. This is chapter 12, verse 7. There was war in heaven, and Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. And the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. And then I heard a loud voice say, Now have come salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser has been hurled down and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb. And then in verse 13 it says, And when the dragon saw that he'd been hurled to the earth, what did he do? He didn't surrender. It says, He pursued the woman who had given birth to the child. He immediately stood up. One thing, one thing you can say about the devil, <laughs> there's no quit in him, right? The dude knows how to persevere. He immediately gets up and begins then to chase the the church, to chase the Messiah. To, I mean, he just doesn't quit. It produces no change in him. In chapter 19, he gathers the kings of the earth to war against God. The false prophet and the beast are thrown into the lake of fire. And Satan is then confined to the abyss and still there's no change. And after a thousand years, he's released and goes right back to his old tricks. Let me say it again. Satan does not compromise. He doesn't learn lessons. He won't quit. You can't negotiate with him. And therefore, those whom he comes against can't afford to compromise and we must not quit. Don't be deceived and don't quit because God is eventually going to bring Satan to a final end. But here's the thing that points to our brokenness. For a thousand years, Satan can't deceive the nations or the people. There's no, we, we used to sing that, uh, there'll be no tempter then. After Jesus shall come back to earth again. And so, uh, you don't know that. Oh, Lord, is coming back to earth again. Satan will be bound a thousand years. We'll have no tempter then. After Jesus shall come back to earth again. Thank the Lord for the old red church hymnal. Anyway, and so a thousand years and he comes back. A thousand years of peaceful rule and reign of Christ. It's paradise. There's no wars. There's no tension. That's when we're, uh, the old folks are, ain't going to study war no more. Ain't gonna. This is kind of a musical lesson as well today. <laughs> ain't going to study war no more. 
The natural order of things is transformed during this time. We're given a taste of what the final chapters of Revelation that we're going to get to with this new heaven and a new earth are going to be like. It's incredible. So how is it even possible that anyone on living on the planet at the end of that thousand years, that anyone, let alone entire nations and peoples, would march against God and the beautiful, perfect, peaceful rule and reign of Christ and his people. And yet, that's what we read. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison, will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth. He's going to cover the whole planet. And he'll gather them from battle. And look at that. In number, they're like the sand on the seashore. And they marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. This is no small crowd. He didn't pick up a few people that, you know, were not happy about something, that got, you know, mad in a church dispute somewhere or whatever. I mean, how is this happening? And I think it must have shocked John's readers the way it kind of shocks us. How and why would this happen? They must have been willing, but what's the, what's the deal here? And I think it makes this point. We're more broken than we think. The human being, our nature and personality is, is more broken and damaged and splintered than we think. It shows us the human condition apart from God. Now, those that are deceived, these are not the resurrected saints of God being deceived, I don't believe. We, we've, these are the ones who have lived into or been born during this thousand-year reign. But it confirms what the Bible says, that the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. That apart from salvation, apart from the new birth, apart from God's grace and His indwelling Spirit, brokenness overwhelms. I often wonder how people can grow up in church and experience the presence of God and then walk away from the faith. And then I stop and think, well, after a thousand years of God's rule, the truth is, without a new heart, without God's saving grace changing them, we're prone to sin and prone to deception and we're prone to to once again be enticed away, enticed by sin, drawn away by our own lust, and, and only God can give a new heart. And that's what salvation is all about, regeneration. It's why Jesus said, you must be born again. You've got to be born of water, but also of the Spirit. You have to become a new creation in Christ. And if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone and the new is come. That's the good news for us, that we can have Jesus in our heart. We can, we can have this, this new relationship with him. We're born again. And, and then we, we can't or won't be. We can choose not to be overwhelmed by the brokenness. But this isn't cause for d- despair. This isn't John saying, we're all too broken, so we're just at the devil's mercy. And look out when he, when he comes back deceiving people because you might slip up. This is John saying, be on guard and trust in his all-sufficient grace. If you resist the devil, the Bible says, he'll flee from you. Refuse to compromise. Don't lean on yourself or your own willpower. Instead, lean on the Lord and rely on him. Hold to the truth. Hold to the truth of God's word. Find yourself rooted and grounded in that and then hold on because let the grace of God be at work in your life. And if that grace is at work, then we don't have to fear. Our hope and our security, our salvation, our deliverance, it's all found in him. And then here's the fourth and final lesson. Hey, we're doing pretty good. I could have gone ahead and written out all those other scriptures and read them, I guess. The last thing, judgment is certain. 
Bible says it's appointed unto men and women, to all of us, once to die, and after that, the judgment. And there's a judgment for the saints of God that's called the judgment seat of Christ. This is where our deeds done for Christ, after we're saved, are judged and rewards are given. But the judgment, the judgment seat of Christ is different than the great white throne judgment that we're talking about here. This is the wicked dead who stand before God in the judgment that we read in Revelation 20. The judgment seat of Christ is where Christians, as I said, after we're saved, we're judged. Rewards are given based on choices we made, how we lived our lives and what we did. That's where Paul says, and and those deeds are examined by fire. Wood, hay, and stubble gets burned away. And and so... uh, are you, are you with me here on this? So in, in that judgment, the judgment seat of Christ, it's not about salvation. He's not determining who gets to go to heaven and who goes to hell because we're, only the righteous have been resurrected or raptured. Only the righteous are going to stand at the judgment seat of Christ, and it's only by his grace and mercy that we're there. And so it's about rewards. It's not about judgment in terms of who's going to heaven or hell. That's that first resurrection for the righteous, those who have been forgiven and follow Christ. Our sins, hallelujah, our sins have already been judged and forgiven through our faith in Jesus and his saving grace. So we've lived through the thousand years, but now there's another resurrection. John calls it the second resurrection. And now he sees everybody there and no one escapes the judgment. Everyone is brought to life and everyone, that's those That's the second resurrection. Everyone meaning everyone besides those who put their faith in Jesus and have already been at the judgment seat of Christ. So he says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And the lake of fire is the second death. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire, the second death. So a couple of quick observations about all that. First of all, notice what John says about an earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. Earth and sky. Well, that's just about everything, isn't it? You know, there was no place for them. Well, what can that possibly mean? I think a a couple of things. One is that it just points to the incredible sovereignty and majesty and power of God that we're suddenly reminded again he's the creator and everything else is his creation and when he stands up or when he sets down to judge all of creation earth and sky flee from his presence i think it also says to me or at least reminds us that everything about the planet earth and sky has been corrupted by sin and so creation itself groans for redemption paul says in romans Everything on the planet's been corrupted by sin, and it can't stand in the presence of a holy, perfect, sinless God. It's like Peter falling on his face and saying, depart from me, Jesus, because I'm a sinful man. At that moment, earth and the sky, the whole universe kind of goes, oh, we're corrupt and we're broken and we're sinful. We've been corrupted by sin. Even when we couldn't make a choice, we were corrupted by it, and it wants to flee away 
from the awesome presence of God. Everything is broken and in need of redemption. The earth and the sky and death and Hades, the place of the dead and the sea and the small and the great and everything and everyone bows to the sovereignty of God at his throne. There's no place, (laughs) there's no place for arrogance or pride. Everybody that feels like, well, I'm just gonna walk right up to God and tell him, now listen, we're gonna have a little conversation here. Earth and sky flee from his presence, all right? So trust me, you don't have an argument, all right? That's just not there. And then it's interesting to me that John said, the books are opened. There were books opened that recorded what people had done, that examined their works and their life. And if you just read the first part of that, you kind of think, oh, well, then maybe it is about what I did. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books, well, I did some pretty good stuff, you know. I mean, I didn't go to church or anything, but I gave money to the poor, and I, you know, sometimes I rolled down the window and gave a buck to somebody standing, you know, at the intersection, and, and uh, you know, I didn't cheat on my wife, and I didn't cheat very much on my taxes, not any more than anybody else. I've been a pretty good moral person, and I think God's kept track of that. I'm not worried about it. The man upstairs, he's kept pretty good records on me, and I've lived a pretty good life. And that's what some of those books say. But then another book is opened. The book of life, it says. Another book was opened. And if your name's written in that book, that's the deal. John's not telling us that salvation's going to be based on our good works or our bad works. In fact, in fact, I think he tells us the opposite. In spite of the good works. I, I think what he wants us to know is that everybody's examined, that it matters how we live our lives, that what we do and the works we do, we know it. if we're, if we're born again, we ought to be doing good works because that's going to be evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ. We're going to see whether our works are going to stand, where our motive's right, where our effort's right. But here, these are, these are the unrighteous. Do they have a shot at getting in? And so I think John's just telling us, look, it matters. God holds everyone accountable for how they live their lives and the choices that they make, righteous and the wicked, the saved and the unsaved. It matters how we live. But again, John's not telling us that salvation is based on good or bad works. He tells us the opposite. He says it all comes down to this one book, the book of life. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. It just comes down to that. Revelation 21 verse 27 says only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. It's the same book. Only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life will enter heaven and into his presence. So the question this morning is, is your name written in the book of life? It's the only way to, it's the only way to get to heaven. And the only way to get your name written in that book is to confess your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ as the Savior and Lord of your life. It's the only way. It all comes down to one book. One book, the book of life. So this morning, here, online, wherever, I'm urging you, like John was urging his folk that were reading it in the first century, surrender your life to him. Live in light of that. Live in light of the promise and the warning 
Call upon him. Surrender your life. Live for him. He'll record your name. All the other stuff. He'll, he'll keep track of all the other stuff. But the, it's, it's that one book, and he'll write your name in that book, and you won't have to fear that final judgment. You won't have to appear here at the great white throne judgment because your sins have already been forgiven because your name's written in that book, and you'll be in the Lord's presence. That day of judgment is coming, and it's horrifying. Right? And I, I, you know, I, I read it again. I'd like to be able to say, well, you know, uh, you're just burned up and, you know, it's one quick moment and you're incinerated. But that's not what's indicated. They're tormented day and night and forever. Anyone whose name was not written down in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. I mean, it, it's, it's horrifying. It's horrifying to think that people are going to are, are spend eternity in hell apart from God and whatever the torment's going to be, however horrible that is. And John kind of wants his readers to understand this terrible threat of judgment because he wants to make sure they avoid the judgment and instead experience the incredible life-giving grace of God. There's a promise of heaven and eternal life, a, pres- a, a promise and a warning, a lesson of last things. And the question just comes down to that. Is your name written in that book today? And if not, it can be. Because today is the day of salvation. And we ask him into our heart. We trust him. And there's salvation for us. And all this other then is just, we're just giving thanks because, yeah, hallelujah, that's not us. But it also motivates us then to tell others, look, we, we want, I want you to know this because there's a day of judgment coming and everybody's going to face it. Is your name written down in God's book, in the book of life, in the Lamb's book of life? Are you prepared and ready for that? So I want us to stand this morning and, and uh, we're just about on time here. And I tell you what, I'm going to pray. If you're, if you're here this morning... And when you examine your heart, if, if talking about hell and talking about judgment kind of put a lump in your throat or a fist in your stomach and you're kind of thinking, I don't want to talk about that. I, want to, I don't want to think about that because I'm afraid if I die right now, I'm going to go to hell and I'm, I'm going to be facing God in that judgment and you're freaking me out with what you're saying right there. I, I, don't, want, I don't want to be there. If that's the feeling you've got, then I want to invite you to step out from where you are and come. There are benches down. You can kneel down here. You can stand down here. But I want to pray for you this morning because I don't want you to experience that judgment. I want you to know that your sins are forgiven and we can deal with it here this morning. And I want to pray with you. So if, if, if that's you, if you're concerned about that, if you know something's not right in my life and I need to get it right with God, I need to surrender my life to him. I need to ask him to forgive me. Then I invite you just to come. And if you're watching online, I'm going to pray in just a minute. I'm talking to you as well. Right there where you are, you can bow your head, bow your heart, get on your knees, lay down on the floor, whatever you need to do. But you can ask Jesus to forgive your sins and come into your heart. The Bible says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. He'll forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then whoever calls on the name of of the Lord is saved. And then there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who walk according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. We can have that forgiveness and know that our name is written in that book. Are you sure? Yeah, that's the assurance of salvation. He's faithful. He's just, and he'll forgive our sins. And he'll write your name in that book. And he's not about to blot it out. Not if you're living for him. So as I pray, if you need to come, come. If you need to pray this prayer, I'm just going to pray what we'd call a sinner prayer and ask for forgiveness. You can join me in that prayer, but I'd be, I would be privileged to pray with you here. But Father, in the name of Jesus, 
I pray that you would examine our hearts and look at us today, Lord. And Father, as you, as we examine our hearts, I pray we'll be as honest with you as the Scripture is with us. And that we'll confess, Lord, when we see sin in our life, when we see things that we know are not pleasing to you, when we recognize that we've been, we've been living in a way that separates us from God. And, and, and if you, Jesus, if you were to return today, or if we died today, there's a question, there's a doubt in our mind about whether we'd go to heaven or whether we'd be lost and stand at that final judgment and be sentenced to a lake of fire. Lord, we want it settled this morning. And the way to do that is to see that our name is written in the book of life. And the way to do that is to confess our sins. So Lord, that's what we do. We admit we're sinners. We're more broken than we thought. (laughs) On our best day, we're still running after sin. On our best day, when the devil shows up, our, our heart's still kind of prone to wander and to go towards that. God, help us in our brokenness to turn to you. I ask you to forgive my sin. Forgive our sins, Lord, as we look to you. We call upon you to save us, to cleanse us from all the unrighteous actions and thoughts and deeds. Take our sin away, Jesus. As you died on the cross, as the substitute for my sin, as you bore the penalty for my sin, Lord, I I place my life in your hands. Forgive me cleanse me, Jesus. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for offering me life for eternity instead of a condemnation in hell, Lord. So Jesus, forgive my sins. Come into my heart. Let me belong to you now and forever. Write my name in the book of life, and I promise, Lord, I'm going to serve you. I'll surrender to you. I'll live for you. I'm going to trust you, and one of these days, Lord, you'll call me home, and I'll be in your presence forever because my name is written in your book. Thank you, Lord, for saving grace. Thank you for mercy and for redemption that comes to us today. Lord, we're glad that today is still a day of salvation and all that turn to you can be saved. We bless your name, Lord. Amen and amen and amen. Hallelujah. There's no reason for people to be lost or condemned to destruction and hell for the word of God declares that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That indeed this is the day of salvation and opportunity is there. And for any and for all who will turn from their sin and turn to Christ, call upon him and ask him to be Savior and Lord of your life, he will indeed cleanse you, forgive you, and make you a new creature, a new creation in Christ Jesus. So turn to the Lord. Surrender your heart to him. Walk away from the past and those things that will be judged and walk instead in the blessing and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, thank you, Lord, that you encourage our heart today. So, Lord, somebody here or online needs to take that action. Don't walk away from his grace. Don't walk away from this place without praying and calling on the Lord. There's no guarantee that we finish today. There's no guarantee that you'll be here next week, next Sunday. Open your heart to Jesus and turn to him. Lord, let it be that not one is lost. Lord, what a, what a tragedy that someone would sit and listen to a sermon and walk away thinking, well, I've still got plenty of time. It'll be another day for me, another opportunity. 
and then suddenly find ourselves standing in the presence of God without hope, without salvation, and without your grace. Oh, God, help us to turn to you while there's time. In Jesus' name, amen. It's a promise to us of eternal life. It's a warning to us, and it's an encouragement to us. Tell somebody else about Jesus and how good he is. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen and amen. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for watching online. We'll see you Wednesday night. Men, we'll see you tomorrow night. Team Carbondale, we'll see you Tuesday. Amen.